I'm Judy, and I'm a very grateful alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here tonight. I like Cincinnati. I've been to Cincinnati before. You're a wonderful bunch of AAs. Um, I want to thank who's ever responsible for getting me here. Um, I work, uh, I've been working on too much lately, actually. And God has a way of uh, deciding that I need to get out of that. Um, and when he decides that, it's usually one of these deals come up. And they always come up when I seem to need them the most. And so it is with this one. So I'm glad to be here, and I'm always honored when I'm asked to lead anywhere. Uh, even if it be a small group in, in Carrollton or at such a gathering like this one. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. And right now I need my water. Hold on. I told my friend to get me two. I've never drank one or anything. And we have to remember that that's how it's written in the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is not written what it was like. It's written what we were like. And so when I get up here and I have to do this, I try and remember that. I think all of us, whether we be AA or Al-Anon, knows what it was like. But what I'm to share with you tonight is what I was like. I can tell you on the onset that I'm not too concerned about being politically correct. Uh, I did that one time uh, when I was asked to speak somewhere and thought maybe I shouldn't be so rough around the edges or perhaps so outspoken. But that's totally out of character for me. And I don't, I don't feel comfortable. Uh, I, all I have to give to you is my experience. Uh, my experience uh, as an operating alcoholic and as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But you will find that you may not be able to relate to the way that I lived but you will relate to the way I felt. Because you see, where I come from and from what my teachings have been in Alcoholics Anonymous, it really doesn't matter where we ended up. You know, it's what went on inside of us. And that's what I'll share with you tonight. Uh, I came from a Polish Catholic home. So really, I was pretty much from birth doomed to be here. <laughs> and I have to tell you too that my mother, um, I had a very strict grandmother. I adored her, and I adored her till the day she died. Typical Polish grandmother. She ran the family, and everybody knew it. It was never questioned. Uh, my mom was divorced when I was about five years old. She remarried when I was about six. And she brought into our lives an alcoholic in the early stages of alcoholism. I must tell you how I felt that I adored this man. My stepfather was a very loving, kind, and giving man when he first came into our lives. Uh, he, he was very concerned about his brothers. Uh, he wasn't prejudiced. He had a terrific sense of humor. And he was a very intelligent man. Uh, and as the disease progressed, all that changed. All that changed. Uh, I need to tell you about myself as a child. I had a terrible problem. I, was, I stuttered horribly when I was a child and was very self-conscious of that. And so I read a lot. Uh, I was an avid reader. I, I got into the books as soon as I could, as soon as I could read, and that was the way I escaped. And I would really get into those fairy tales, and and that's where I'd hide. I never ever felt like I belonged. And I wish I could tell you that was after I started drinking. It wasn't. It was from the time I was very very little. I just didn't feel like I belonged. And perhaps the stuttering had something to do with that. But even when the stuttering ceased and it quit, it seems like as quickly as it came on. Uh, I just never felt like I belonged. Somehow, I was always a misfit, and I never felt comfortable, and I felt like what I've heard so many people say in Alcoholics Anonymous, there was something missing. There was a piece missing, and I never knew what it was. As a child, I had to go to, to Mass, of course, and I knew about the Church. Of course, back then, uh, Catholics only spoke in Latin uh, during Mass, but it didn't make any difference. We were, we were forced to go, and we went. When my mother divorced, of course, that quit. And uh, we began to go to a different church. But again, I never ever, I never, ever felt like I fit. We moved uh, from Michigan, uh, my home state, the state I was born in, and we moved to Ohio here and spent a few years here, and then we were to move to Atlanta, Georgia. And um, I grew up primarily in Atlanta, and Atlanta's a wonderful town. Uh, and came into Alcoholics Anonymous in Atlanta. 
My sobriety date is uh, December the 18th, 1972. And I tell you that not because I think I'm terrific, but because I know that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is. Um, I came into this fellowship when I was 23. I'm 46, so you don't have to sit there and calculate. <laughs> and I've, I've been sober since, since the day I came in. Uh, I think a lot of that is, is I knew I'd had it by the time I got here. I knew there wasn't another drunk left for me. My stepfather was drinking real, real heavy by the time we got to Atlanta. He started drinking heavy when we were living in Ohio. And it was starting to interfere with the family. And I was the oldest of three girls, and I was always the one that was going to get in there and fix the family fights. And when I talk to you about the alcoholic home I grew up in, it's one of those things that some people don't think I should talk about from a podium. But this is alcoholism, and this is the disease of alcoholism. And I personally believe that a lot of times, by the time we get up here and we start sharing and we start giving leads, that we forget how bad this disease really is. You know, and we want to do everything we can to clean it up. Alcoholism is a filthy disease. You know, it contaminates everybody it comes in contact with. And I don't ever want to forget that, not only from the standpoint of how it was like for me when I grew up, but from the standpoint of the injury and harm I, re I put on people in my act of alcoholism. And my alcoholic home was one of those homes where people got hit a lot, myself and my mother in particular. My two kid sisters had sense enough to get out of the room and go back in their bedrooms and shut the door. You know? But I had to be in the middle of it. I took my first drink when I was about 10 years old. Um, and the only thing I need to remember about that is that I automatically wanted my second. You know? uh, but by the time I was 12, I had a problem. By the time I was 14, I was an alcoholic. And I know that today. All right. As my stepfather got more and more violent, I started to decide, well, I decided one time when I picked myself up off the floor, I don't have to take this anymore. And I started hitting back. And violence also became a way of life for me. I was also one of those uh, children who was sexually abused in the home. And I don't use that as an excuse for my alcoholism. It's a statement of fact. Okay, it's part of my story. And as a footnote here, I will tell you that I have heard a lot from a lot of podiums here lately that uh, we are blaming our disease on everything but booze. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't understand that. You see, I can, I can promise you, yes, that I was sexually abused, and I can, I can honestly say, and I do believe, that my childhood was taken from me. I do, however, believe that it, it is my choice whether or not I give him my adulthood too. Okay, that's my choice. So I don't choose to go around and cry about being sexually abused. That was part of my life. That's part of what happened to me. And I'm a big believer that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the tools to deal with that and to go on in life and to be, be a success and not have to carry that albatross about being a victim on my shoulders all the time. I am not a victim and I don't like to be called a victim. You know, it's just a pathetic term to me and I am not a pathetic human being. You know, so I, I lost that shackle a long time ago thanks to some good sponsorship. I got through high school and I don't know how and after I got out of high school I went straight to work. I didn't want to go to college. I felt like college would interfere with my drinking. Okay. So I didn't go to college. And I had, I had a good job, and I quit that job for a better job. And um, actually, the one, well, the one place burnt down. I didn't really quit. I mean, there wasn't any place to go back to work. But I just uh, got another job and, and worked, our way, worked my way up. And I think a lot of us can do that, too, in our, the early stages of alcoholism. I think alcoholics are real, real good about falling upstairs. And I know I was. You know, I was real good about making the appearance that I had it all together. I was real good about telling people, you know, look, I wouldn't have this badge on that says manager if I didn't know what I was doing. Now, I was working in a retail store in Atlanta, Rich's. It's comparable to Lazarus or Kaufman's here. And they had several stores throughout the Atlanta area. I was 19 years old. I had 20 women working for me. No. Now, I was doing that not so that I could say, yes, I'm achieving. I was doing that at that stage of the game so I could prove to myself. I had to prove to myself there was nothing wrong with me. I had to prove to all the people who were talking to me about my drinking. You think they'd promote somebody if I was a drunk? Do you think, I'm the youngest head of sales this store has ever had. Do you think they'd do that if I was a drunk? Don't tell me I'm not drinking too much. I get up, I go to work every day. I do a good job for these people. They recognize it, why can't you? Whatever I could do to put them out there, 
to put up those defenses. So it was not because I wanted to be successful. It was because I had to hide my own inadequacies. As things will happen, in two years, uh, I was of legal age to drink in the state of Georgia. I got to tell you that between that period of 19 and 21, uh, I left home, which really is kind of natural, I guess. And I got my own apartment. Even though I couldn't drink in that stage, you had to be 21 years old to drink. Uh, uh, there were several places where I knew I could buy a bottle, and I did. I bought frequent of them every night, as a matter of fact. And my day kind of went like, you know, I got up in the morning and I went to work, and I got off work at 6.10, and uh, I got on the bus and took the bus back to the apartment, and right on the corner, oddly enough, is a liquor store. And I stopped at the liquor store, and I got my cork for the evening, and I went back to that apartment, and the only thing that came off before the cork on that bottle was my shoes. And I went to the kitchen and poured a glass. I was using a glass back then. And uh, got myself a little drink, you know, and sit down and I drink and I drink. And I don't know how it was for you, but, you know, if you start drinking around 6.30 at night, come about 10.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30, you get, you get real lonely. You know how that goes. You're tired of being alone and you've talked to everybody you can talk to, you know, because they're starting to hang up on you now. They don't want to talk anymore. You've called them four times that night just to help them straighten out their life, you know. And I'd get the lonelies. And I, there was a corner bar, and honest to God, the name of this bar was The Hole in the Wall. And uh, there's a corner bar, and I'd be about three sheets of the wind, and I'd walk up there. And this is another portion of my lead that some people say, well, you really ought to clean up, and I won't do it. And that's, I don't know if I won't do it because I'm still defiant, or if I, <laughs> if I just think it needs to be said, and I think it's more the latter than than uh, the fact I need to clean it up. Uh, I'd go up to that bar and, and see what guy I was going to fall in love with that night is really what it boiled down to. You know, I was one of those gals that walked into a bar and, and, and picked men up and, and took them home. And I was drunk and he was drunk. And I know that none of you know any of them like that, but I was one. And, uh, and I didn't have any problem with that. That's the way, of course, back in the 60s, it was a lot safer to do than it is now. But nevertheless, it didn't matter to me. You know, I just didn't want to be alone. And those are the feelings that I, I'd go through, you know. I didn't want to be alone, but I didn't want to be with anybody. And, you know, I'd want to be around people and I'd want to fit in, but I never could. And I've heard it said many times, and I've, I've felt it many times, even in Alcoholics Anonymous. You walk into a room that's absolutely packed and you still feel alone. You still feel like nobody understands. You know? And so I'd bring these guys home. And sometimes I'd be in one of my bad moods. And I'd start a fight, you know, and sometimes I'd get a hold of a guy that was in a bad mood, too. And I'd wake up the next morning and I'd have a black eye and a cut lip and, and you can't go to work, you know. And I'll tell you, any of you have been through it, uh, females in particular, you know it and I know it, that there's, there's no makeup that's going to cover some of those bruises. They're just not going to go away. And your only option is not to show up for work. And so I had some time built up and I could take a few days off here and there. Now I'm about 20, 21, and I'm getting sicker physically. And it was just part of the deal for me. It was just part of the way I wanted to drink. Because, you see, you never took it. Don't take my alcohol away. You can take my men away, and you can take my job away, and you can take my house away, but don't take my booze away. Because that's the only thing that makes it worthwhile. That's the only thing that gives me any reason to get up in the morning at all. You know, so that denial set in, boy, and I was not going to give that up for nothing. So it always had to be something or someone else. It wasn't the liquor. It couldn't be the liquor. No. I got engaged a lot. Um, I would get, uh, I quit the job there that I had and I went to work, which was a real brilliant alcoholic move. I went to work in the bar and restaurant business just as soon as I turned 21. And uh, it, it was during that period between, between 21 and 23 before I got into the fellowship that that uh, it, everything fell apart. And I was, I was engaged to a guy. I was engaged to a guy during this period on and off for, well, two and a half years I saw this man. And, and uh, this was the guy that, you know, called a family meeting with my mother and my two sisters. And I wasn't invited. Has your family ever had one of those? You know, what are we going to do with her? And uh, I never knew about that. I was about six years sober before I ever knew they had that family meeting. 
Um, and, and so it was for me. Uh, and during this time, too, I didn't really ever want to hurt anybody. You know, this was uh, one of those times I was engaged to two guys at once, and, um, and I, got, I got caught is what happened. I got mixed up because I had them both coming over for dinner, and I thought I had one one night and one the next night, and it was actually I invited both of them for the same night. And I, I don't care how good a con you are, there is no way you can explain this scenario. There's just, there was no way I could explain that. And I'll never forget the look on the one guy's face, you know, and I didn't know what to say to him. I just didn't know what to say, so I just shut the door and I went and I got drunk. I mean, what else was there to do? You know, and then I'd, I'd tell myself, well, it doesn't matter. There's other fish in the sea. I'll find another one. And I'm here to tell you, when you're 21 and you're drinking and you're hanging out in bars, you'll find another one. You know, and in particular, if you're not real picky about what you bring home, you'll find another one. You know, and so it was for me. So that's how I ended up getting engaged those three or four times or however many it was. I was getting sicker and I couldn't work bar and restaurant business anymore and just like a lot of my drinking patterns, you know, I started out in one of the nicest places in Atlanta to work, real good house, and was making good money, but as I became sicker physically and as I became sicker mentally, I, could do, I just couldn't hold up anymore, I couldn't show up, they couldn't bank on me being there anymore. And I would get some reason to get mad and we also have that too, you know. You know, our promises talk about intuitively knowing. I think alcoholics intuitively knew long before they got here. I intuitively knew every time I was going to get asked. Every time. I just knew it was coming and I'd always take off and find another place to work. And, uh, and so I did here and I kept doing that and pretty soon I ended up working some of the roughest guys in Atlanta. You know, just bad places. I mean, you go in there and you work for tips. Uh, nobody knows your name. Those kind of places, you know. Um, down back alleys or in the bad parts of town. Uh, just enough to keep you going. Uh, tough places. Tough places. Tough way to live. Getting drunk every night. Every night. Uh, we, went, we had a bar that we all frequented that worked in the bar and restaurant business. And legally, we were supposed to close the doors at 2 o'clock in the morning. And she did. She closed the doors, but we all stayed in there. And there were a lot of times we were leaving that place and the sun had been up already for hours. You know, and I, I get tickled when I look back at this portion of my drinking because I was the one that was always the designated driver. <laughs> you know, I was the designated driver. And, you know, I've heard drunks talking about losing their car and I, I never really had that experience, but I lost a lot of other people's cars. You know, and we were all drunk, so it would be like we'd have to have a, like a, a conference to try and remember where we last had the car. You know, and none of us were real sure how we got to where we woke up that afternoon. You know, I mean, you think about it. Try and get six alcoholics together to remember where they put one car. It just, it was, it was chaos. Just chaos. But we always managed to get it together and go back to work. Start the same thing all, together, all over again. All over again. And this was every night. This was every night. This was the running around drinking, the getting in fights, the bringing men home, the not caring. And what was happening in here on the inside was that I truly didn't care. You know, somewhere along the line between all this madness, I had lost the ability to care. And I tell you, when you live the way that I lived, what happens is, yes, you do become cold, and yes, you do become bitter. And you do that not because you want to be, but you do that to survive. You do that to keep breathing. You don't want anybody to know that you're soft on the inside. Don't let anybody know that you're hurting on the inside. Because if you do, they'll take you. They'll take you. So you just make sure you, that everybody knows you're tough. I used to like knives back then. I kept a knife next to my bed. And I'm not talking about a little pocket knife. I'm talking about a knife. Um, just in case somebody broke in. And, of course, I'd have been passed out. They could have taken everything. I don't know what I thought a good knife would have done, you know. I was running with people who were running drugs. I was just hanging around a bad bunch. That's all there was to it. Couldn't hold a job anymore, and all my fiancés... Another thing I forgot to tell you about my fiancés, most of them had money, which an alcoholic woman needs. And periodically, I would get myself in trouble and be a little bit late on rent or maybe have a few things that need to be taken care of. So I would let them come in and get me caught up. And then eventually they would, they would leave, of course, because my drinking was so out of hand, nobody could live with that. You know, and that was fine because I just, like I told you, I'd just go out and get another one. 
And, and a lot of these guys, too, had that, you know, that good old Al-Anon syndrome. I will straighten her out. You know, and it never worked. It never worked. But it got me through the tough times. So I'm in another one of those tough times, and I'm living in some flea bag place, and I can't get my act together and rent's due, and I got no money, and I'm too sick to go to work. And I called a guy I knew in the bar and restaurant business, and his name was Pearl. And I went to work for Pearl as a hooker on the streets of Atlanta because that's what I had to do. That's what I had to do to support my habit. You know, and I don't want to say, I don't want to stand up here and be arrogant and say I carry no shame about that, but I don't because it's what I had to do. Given the same set of circumstances, in the same situation, I would probably do the same thing. I didn't have any other choice. No. And this is a portion, I remember one time I talked in Georgia or South Carolina, somewhere, and a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, Judy, I really enjoyed your talk. However, couldn't you clean it up a little bit? You know, and so I was trying to be open-minded and I thought, okay, I'll look at this. And I started looking at my story. And I came to the acute realization that if I clean it up, I hadn't got a story. <laughs> There's nothing there. There's just nothing there. You know, I've also had some people, and I heard this not too long ago, about two years ago at a meeting, from a lady, and she said, you know, I really don't think that we should allow women, who used to be whores, talk from an AA podium. <laughs> you'd have been proud, man. I didn't deck that broad. I, you know, you'd have been proud. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I will tell you what I was taught early on. Uh, uh, I, I can share with you something. See, I find that my biggest critics are the ones who either didn't have sense enough to sell it or the ones who had to pay for it. So you do what you have to do. Didn't last long out there either. And I came home one night and I went nuts. That's just the best way to put it. And I called my mother, my dear mother. And uh, she came over and got me and she talked to me. And it, long and short of that is three days later, I found myself in a state hospital um, for the insane. And uh, I was not in there for being an alcoholic. Um, they put me in there for being suicidal, homicidal. And later on, I was to find out that on my records that my doctor was afraid to let me out. I was on a locked ward because I was a danger to myself and to society. They had me on medication to keep me from being violent and hitting the other people who were also violent. <laughs> and, you know, I think the oddity of this whole thing is, and, you know, when you go into one of those places, you talk to like seven professionals, seven shrinks. Nobody ever said anything to me about my drinking. Nobody. They all focused in on the stepfather thing. But nobody ever said anything about my drinking. The only person that ever mentioned my drinking to me was another patient, which I think is really bizarre. You know, I mean, one of the other psychos had to say, Judy, you think you got a problem with drinking? You know? <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. But that's how it was in 72. That's really how they didn't look. In 72, they didn't look at a 23-year-old woman as being a chronic alcoholic. There had to be another reason there. Okay. But I was nuts. And I knew I was nuts. I knew that that front I had put on for so long had become real. I knew that when I looked at you and I had that knife in my hand or that broken beer bottle in my hand and I said, I'll cut your throat, I meant it. I meant it. I knew I was capable of that. And that scared me. Because, you know, you can only get so drunk and that doesn't go away. And you know you're that sick. Well, I behaved very, very well there. They kept me on some pills that really just kept me stupid. That's all, just stupid. And I bounced off some walls and... And I didn't, I only got mad at one other patient one time and I was holding a, a, a glass of Coca-Cola and they just, they wouldn't let us have glass. We had that plastic stuff that you can't cut yourself with. And uh, one of the patients did something, and I threw that at her. I didn't like her the way she was talking, so I threw that Coca-Cola at her, and ice and Coke and everything went all over the place. And 
my God, all the men in those white coats come flying down the hallway. And I mean, you'd have thought I'd done something that was bizarre. I didn't think it was that out of line. But at any rate, uh, they put me on restriction and I was not allowed to leave the facility. I think it was for a couple of months. So during that two months, you know, I became the best patient that ward's ever seen. And you know I was running a con. You know I was running a con because I was going to get out of there. I'd made up my mind I was getting out of that place. I didn't care how I had to act, what I had to do. I was going to get out of there. I was needing a drink, and I knew that this month stretch here not drinking was going to be real tough. So I was going to speed it up as long as I could, you know, as quickly as I could. And so I did, and I became that best patient, you know. I went and worked out at the gym, and I did my decoupage stuff, and I talked to all the counselors whether they wanted to listen or not, you know, and they were just in there charting me up real good. You know, and sure enough, I finally got a three-hour pass, and boy, I hit that gate, and that was it, man. I'm still out on that three-hour pass, you know. <laughs> Tell me I can't. You know, you can watch. And you know what happened. Of course, you know what happened. I mean, I had it set up when I left. I had a man waiting for me at the gate, and it's back off to the races and back off to the same thing, you know. Waking up and not knowing where you are, not knowing how you got there, not knowing who you're with. You know, when I came to after this one, uh, my mother, of course, was worried to death. She didn't know where I was. The hospital had called her and told her I left. I was gone. She told me later I was gone somewhere between 10 to 14 days. You know, and I know when I came to in that flea bag hotel on the south side of the city that I had not changed clothes. I still had the same clothes that I had when I left the institute. I know I had not bathed. And I woke up in that filthy, stinking hotel room one more time alone, you know, and the place was a mess. And I don't know who paid my bill, and I don't know who, I, I don't know how the woman that found out about me being there even found out, because I don't remember calling anybody. I don't remember telling anybody I was there. I don't remember anything. And I still don't to this day. But this gal came over, and she got me, and she took me back home to Mama's, and that's where we always go, isn't it? Back home to Mama. And I went back home to Mama. And Mama came home that day to find her 23-year-old daughter 10 days without a bath, stinking from booze and being sick and sleeping with men. We have a step in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called making amends. I don't know how one makes amends for something like that. I don't know how I make amends to my mother for when she had to decide two days later whether to commit me permanently to an institution or not. How do I make amends to her for that day that she came home from work and found that mess that was her firstborn daughter? How do we make amends for that? You know, our big book tells us that we are foolish if we think staying sober is enough. It isn't enough. So in order for me to rest easy with me, the way I make amends to my mother is I am the best daughter I can be on a daily basis. The best daughter I can be. And so that means when my mother wants to call and she wants to talk, I'll never forget she called one time. She'd had her little Pekingese trimmed. And she gave me the details of that trim on that Pekingese right down to the color of her little toenails. And what color ribbons they put in her ear, you know. And it couldn't be a, she couldn't just say pink. It was a light pink, you know, and that's mama. And the way I make amends is to sit there and say, that sounds cute, Mom. Take a picture and send it to me, Mom. That's the way I make amends. To be the daughter I always wanted to be. To give her the love back. That's what I always wanted to do. And before I came to this fellowship, I couldn't. I didn't know how. I did not know how. So you taught me, you see. You taught me. Shortly after that drunk, like a couple of days, three days maybe, I attempted suicide. Uh, They took me to the hospital. I got my stomach pumped. Nice little shrink comes in and talks to me about going into another institution and going into group therapy, and I told him what he could do with both of them. And I turned around and stomped out. And two days later, my mother did the kindest thing for me that she's ever done. She threw me out of her house. And she told me I was not welcome back. And I never thought that was going to happen. And I think that that's when it finally it was like ice water in the face, man. Something hit me. Something's wrong here, Jude. Now, at first, and of course, my, my anger came out first. How dare you? How dare you? I'm your daughter. How could you treat me that way? 
That's what came out first. But later, when I was alone, when I had to look at me, you know, I knew why she had to do it. I knew why. I had two kid sisters living in that house. I had no right doing what I was doing in that house. You know, I was bringing men over to my mother's house. I got kid sisters there. This is no way. This is no way. You know. So she threw me out. And um, I went to stay with the last friend I had in the world who was my cousin. And three weeks later, she was to do the same. And it was December the 18th. I was a week before Christmas, and uh, she told me to pack my bags and go. She couldn't take my drinking anymore. She said, I've been around a lot of people who drink a lot, Jude, but I've never seen anybody drink like you. You've got to go. I can't have you around here. And I was arrogant, and I was cocky, and I was cruel to her, too. And I said, I'll go. I don't need you, and I don't need anybody else. No. And I went to that door, and it was cold. I'll never forget it. It was one of the coldest Decembers we had in Atlanta. And there was ice on the step. And maybe some of you can understand this, or maybe you can't, but if you're ever out on the streets, I'll guarantee you in mid-July, it can be cold out on the streets, let alone the December, you know. And I remember it hitting me, and I know it was God talking to me then. I remember it hitting me, where are you going to go? you got no place else to go. It came to me so clearly that there was not one person I had known my entire life, family or otherwise, that would even return one of my phone calls. Nobody would talk to me. Nobody. And I had no place to go. And I asked my cousin if she'd call AA, and she did. And the lady got on the phone, and she asked me how I was feeling, and I told her I thought I was dying. Because, you see, I was an around-the-clock drinker, and for my body to go without anything over four hours without booze was a real traumatic thing. You know, and I went into, I started into withdrawals right away. Oh, and I'd already done the convulsion things, and I've already, I'd already done all those real nice things, seeing stuff coming out of the walls and hearing music that wasn't on. I knew what all that was. Okay, but I felt the withdrawals coming on, and she asked me how I was doing, and I told her I thought I was dying. And she gave me the old alcoholic cure, you know, Pepsi-Cola and honey. And that's what I lived on, truthfully. For three days, I ate nothing but honey and drank nothing but Pepsi-Cola because I couldn't eat. I mean, eating was just too, that was just way too much to ask. I weighed about 85 pounds. And probably 20 of that was retained water. Yeah. I just, I was sick. I was physically sick. Uh, mentally, I couldn't even touch base. I couldn't carry on a conversation with you. I couldn't read a book. You know, I was just lost. I was just vacant. There was nothing there. Nothing. And I was as close to being dead as a living human can be. She told me the people would be by at 7.15 to pick me up and take me to my first meeting. I had to start getting ready around 4.30. My cousin Joe had to help me because I was physically not strong enough to get in and out of the tub. And we did the best we could with me. I absolutely made her put makeup on. I could not go somewhere without my face on. No. And it, it, we don't do it much now, but maybe some of you ladies remember. You remember the, the years when we wore eyeliner way out to, the, you know, like your hairline? You try and do that with a set of shakes, and you got that stuff going up and down, and oh, it's horrible. But I had to look good, you know. Had to look good. So uh, she got me ready, and sure enough, 7.15, they come to the door, and the first one to walk in was one of the best-looking men to this day. He is still one of the best-looking men I've ever seen. And, you know, I kind of sat there and had a cigarette hanging out of the corner of my mouth, which I always did back then. Never took it out. Never took it out. When I carried on a conversation with you, it'd be in there, it'd bob up and down, ashes all over the place. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. You know, I just left it in there. And I had to leave it in there because that meant I was tough. You see, if the cigarette's hanging out of the corner of the mouth, you're tough. You keep the hair across the eye, all right, because that's sexy. And that's the role you got to play, the tough, sexy gal, right? And that's the way I greeted my two AA buddies that came in to 12-step me. But in comes this man, and he's looking real good, and and I'm thinking, you know, AA may not be too bad after all. (laughs) And I'm watching him as he's coming in the room. But right behind him came Rebecca Sunnybrook Farms. And I'm sitting there, I'm sick, I'm hungover, I'm trying to look good for this guy. And in she comes, and she's got a smile that goes from ear to ear, and little tiny earrings on, short hair, just not a hair out of place, tiny little heels, 
a brown princess coat with a velvet collar. I'll never forget that coat. And she comes walking over to me with that big smile and said, Hi, my name's Bunny. And I, oh, God, man. And I looked at my cousin Joe, and Joe gave me a look that only a good Al-Anon can give, which is, you go or you're dead. And I went, and I went to my first AA meeting, and I didn't say much, and I didn't say much for a long time in the program because I was real, I was just checking y'all out, you know. But um, I went to that first AA meeting, and the only thing I need to remember about that meeting is that at the very end of the meeting, they asked me, Judy, do you have any questions? Is there anything you'd like to know about us? And I will tell you people, I don't know why, I do not know why I decided to be honest at that point in time. I don't know why. You know? But I said, no, I don't have any questions. I just don't want to get drunk anymore. I am sick to death of being drunk. And I truly was. Everything I had inside of me was worn out. I was tired of it. I was tired of the drinking. I was tired of not being able to work. I was tired of not being welcome in my mother's home. I was tired of people avoiding me. I was tired of the way I looked. I was tired of the way I was living. I was tired of the lies. I was tired of the whole thing. Anything would be better than where I was. Anything. And Buddy, the man that 12 stepped me, reached across the table and he patted my hand. And he said, you don't ever have to drink again, baby. You don't ever have to drink again. It was the first promise that was made to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know? And then he said, and we're going to show you how. And we're going to show you how. Well, I got into the program and, you know, 90 Day Wonder Boy, I'm in there and, and I got, well, I never even looked at the steps because I really didn't think I needed them. See, it was, to me, it was just a matter of the fact that I drank too much every now and then. And I had fallen into a lot of that stuff that they were telling me about, you know, it's his fault. It's your stepfather's fault. You're trying to escape this. You're trying to escape that. I bought into a lot of that. And, you know, when we get sober, that doesn't go away. We don't walk into Alcoholics Anonymous and get rid of all that stuff. Okay, so I was still using that as an excuse. And then for some reason in my mind, I thought I would become a lady if I got married. Because all the ladies I knew were married. So, you know, I thought, okay, I'll get married like the rest of these ladies. Now, I didn't have, I mean, I just wasn't thinking real clearly. Now, and Alcoholics Anonymous, when you're brand new, it's not real hard to find a husband. Because there's a lot of guys that are brand new looking for a wife. Okay? And, and again, you know, my requirements weren't much. Wear pants and breathe, honey, and you're mine. And, uh, and God love him, that's about all I got, too, if you want to know the truth. It, it, he had, I had four months sobriety when I got married, and my spouse had five. And I don't know, we had all these things we were going to do, you know, start a chain of AA houses or something, I don't know. Out of all the moronic things, I decided, we decided, he and I, that the reason that we were so messed up was because we'd lived in this huge city all our lives, and we needed to go to the country. Now, I have been asphalt and concrete all my life. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, all the clothes I had were street clothes, okay? And I'm not talking bag lady clothes. I'm talking green satin, hot pants, and fishnet O's kind of clothes. Okay. And I didn't come into a lot of money or a good job when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was too sick. So I move up into North Georgia, strong Church of God country up there. And my satin hot pants and fishnet hose and using that street talk that I know those people had never heard. They did not have any idea what I was calling them. Because, you see, my mouth was terrible. I mean, my mouth was... It embarrasses me now. And my husband, Craig, my present husband, Craig, um, he reminds me, really, because I never thought it was that bad until he quoted some of the things I said during meetings. And I couldn't believe it. He, I, I know he's not lying because my sponsor told me I said the same thing. I mean, it was awful, you know. And I didn't even stop to think about it. I never thought, thought about it being offensive to anybody. It was just the way I had talked. It's just the way I talked. I didn't think it offended anybody. And just as a little footnote here, if you've got a garbage mouth in your group, do the same thing my home group did to me, okay? There was a real nice guy that came up to me one day. He didn't admonish me. He didn't slap my hand. He didn't say, hey, you stupid newcomer. He said, Judy, why do you cuss so much? No. 
I never thought about it. And he said, no more about it. He said, no more about it. But I started thinking about it. That I did cuss a lot and I did use language that was offensive. And I wondered why people would look at me kind of strange sometimes. You know, but it was after I said something insulting about their family that, that I didn't even know their family, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was, it was not nice stuff. And, uh, and I started thinking about it. And I started, I withdrew from cussing. I didn't withdraw from alcohol, but I withdrew from cussing. And I started, in case you've got a problem with your mouth out there, I, I started not using the Lord's name in vain. And that's where I started. You know, and most of the time, I can go quite a span without using foul language. But that wasn't the case when I first got here. It wasn't the case. But see, Alcoholics Anonymous taught me that. So anyway, we move up to this Hiawassee town and I'm turning the air blue with my mouth and I'm walking around in these trash clothes and because it's all I had and I couldn't understand why I wouldn't fit into the community. You know? And I tried to go to AA meetings up there and uh, there weren't many to begin with and we were broke. And I'm, I mean, we were broke. Now, when I'm talking broke, I mean, we got $2 left for the rest of the week. Do you go to an AA meeting? Get gas and go to an AA meeting? Or do you use those two bucks to eat on? That kind of broke. Okay, and unless you've been there, you don't know that is, that is not a good way to live. And uh, began one hunting season, my, uh, my ex-husband got a deer, and it's a good thing because that's what we ate on. That entire winter was that deer. Uh, and uh, that was the way it had to be for me. And it was cold up there and I was lonely. But in another way too, you know, God, God provides. I had bought books from Alcoholics Anonymous when I came into the program. And since I couldn't get to meetings, I got into the literature. And I read the 12 and 12. I did not read the big book. I was five years sober before I could understand that big book. But I was a big believer and still am a big believer in the 12 and 12. There was another book out, Came to Believe. And I lost count how many times I read that book. Because I've got to tell you about my relationship with God, okay? I didn't have one. It was just that simple. Somewhere along the line, I made a deal with him. Look, you stay out of my business. I'll stay out of yours. Three rollers to save my soul, man. Just get them out of my face. I, got, I, I don't want no problems here. I didn't want nothing to do with God. For a while in my life, I blamed God, and I knew that wasn't right. Somehow, I knew that wasn't right, you know. But I didn't want a relationship with God, and even though a lot of you told me, I, you know, it wasn't going to sink into this brain, not in the first year. It just wasn't going to sink in. But I wanted to, and I wanted to because I had sponsors that scared me and said, you better, because the big book says there comes a time in every alcoholic's life when his only means of defense against that first drink has to come from a higher power. See, back then, sponsors threatened you. Sponsors were spons sponsors. They weren't counselors. You know, when they told you to sit down and shut up, you did it. You intuitively knew this was not open for discussion. No. I had two sponsors, both of which were male. A lot of people don't like that either. But I'll tell you what, both of them gone on to glory now, and I, I, I don't know what I've done those first three years without them. I simply do not know. Those men taught me Alcoholics Anonymous. They taught me the big book. They taught me how to live Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I say they taught me the big book, I'm not saying they sat me down and said, read this line and this line and this line. I watched how they walked. I watched how they lived with their family and with their friends. That's what I saw in Alcoholics Anonymous. These guys had eight and twelve years, and I'm directing this directly to the gentleman. No, I'm not. I'm directing it to both ladies and men. They had eight and twelve years. Neither one of them had any doubt that there were but twelve steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? So if you're out there and you've got some time in this fellowship, and you're working with a newcomer, I don't care what sex you are, all right? You remember that Alcoholics Anonymous has 12 steps, not 13. Remember that. Okay? Because what you do with that new alcoholic could kill him. You know, and I will be eternally grateful. Big Jim, Jim and Dad were like, were like, were both like dads to me. 
You know, I never had to sit down and talk to either one of them for hours on end, except when I took my first fist step. Never had to do that. Because Jim would always say, I'll see you at the meeting tonight, I'll catch you there. Or he'd say, Jude, we're going out to dinner, come on, let's go. And I didn't want to go. You see, I was kind of scared, and I, didn't, I knew I wouldn't fit in, and I didn't know how to behave anymore. I did not know how to behave. Now, I was raised in the side of town where there were, you know, the social clubs and the golf courses and all that stuff. And all that was real important. You know, you had to have the right car, and you had to work for the right firm, and, and you had to live in that section and go to that school. So I knew what all that was about, but I didn't know how to do it anymore. I just didn't know how to behave anymore. I had lost all my social skills. I just didn't know. So they had to teach me all over again. And I was scared. Jim could see through that, and Dad could see through that. I wouldn't let you see it. I wouldn't let you see it. Even if you did see it, I wouldn't let you see it. So we get up there, and we're up in Hiawassee, and I'm miserable. And all I'm doing is reading books. And maybe if I'm lucky, I'm getting to two meetings a month. But I'm hitting those books every day, every day, and reading them over and over. And sure enough, the day came, my ex and I had a big fight. And, um, and I, was, uh, I, was, uh, I was real upset, and I was crying. And when that was highly unusual for me, I didn't cry. Tough broads don't cry, you know that. But I was crying, and I took my two dogs, and I went for a walk. And there was a real beautiful little eight-acre lake there next to, to where we lived. And I took those two dogs down there by that lake and sat down, and, and there was a nice mountain right behind it, and I was sitting there crying, and, and I remember going to God for the first time. And I remember saying, God, I don't know if you're up there, and I don't know if you can hear me, but I got to have some relief or I'll drink again, and I don't want to drink again. You know? And I'd never cried that hard before. And I swear to you, the air became so still and so quiet. And it was as though there was a good friend sitting next to me who said, you're going to be okay, kid. You're going to be okay. Now, from that moment on, I was different. And the reason I believe truly I was different was because from that moment on, I was a child of God. Never in my life had I been a child of God. And I was now a child of God. And things started changing. The marriage did not last much longer after that, Um, and I came back to Atlanta and um, got myself a little apartment, and Craig and I had known one one another for since nearly since I'd been sober, and um, we were friends, and that was something that upset the group, too, because we really were friends, you know? I mean, we weren't just saying, oh, we're just friends, and then sleeping with one another, we were really just friends, and um, and we started seeing each other. He was divorced and we started seeing each other and, and in 1976 we were married and uh, still married. And that's nice. That's nice. Uh, it's been a good marriage. And we've had our rough times and I'll share some about some of those too. Uh, because, you know, I think it's real, real important that, that when we share Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't get up here and say, you know, since I've been in AA, life has just been super. I haven't had any problems. Now, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true for some folks, and I'm certainly not condemning them if they're telling the truth, but I'm here to tell you it's not that way for me. It hasn't been that way for me. You know, there have been times in sobriety when I wasn't really sure I wanted to stay sober. You know, I wasn't really sure. I mean, sober was so miserable, and I'd look at, here's sobriety, and here's drunkenness, man, and they're just about even. You know, and why is it when you're in one of those moods, you get one of these big book thumpers? Have you ever noticed that? When you're in the moods where you just can't stand Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and all these spiritual people around, you know, and then somebody comes up and says, "Read the big book and go to meetings," which is not what you need to hear. Which I really think is a cop out too on the part of the one that says it. You know, if you know that there's a drunk sitting there hurting. Let's come up with a little bit something else, you know, other than read your big book and go to meetings. If you know that there's another alcoholic there that's suffering, and and also don't tell anybody to read the big book if you haven't. Um, You obviously cannot transmit something you do not have, is what the book says. No, but we say it, we say it. You know, and I hear a lot of times, and I'm lucky I get around AA a lot. 
And I hear a lot of people say things are different now. Eh? It's not like it used to be. I've been saying it for years. But I know what I noticed tonight is that between 30 years and 20 years, there weren't a lot of people that stood up. Now, they're not here to hear me say this, but in case any of you see them, you can tell them. With the exception of physical reasons for not being here, I think that is the height of selfishness and self-centeredness. To come to Alcoholics Anonymous, get your life together, get what you want, and then bid us adieu. Now, gratitude is an action. It's not a word. It's not, it's not just something we say. And my own personal opinion is that you, if those folks really knew what they were missing, okay, we have such a wonderful thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, such a wonderful blessing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I loved being around drunks when I was drinking, and I love being around drunks now that I'm sober. We have the most twisted, delightful outlook on life of any group I've ever known. You know? It's just, it's great. It really is great. You know, you walk in and you tell people exactly how you feel. Any place else, they put you away. You walk in here and 200 people say, yeah, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. It's wonderful. You know, my family still doesn't understand me. My mother got lover when I was in Atlanta. I was sponsoring a bunch of people, and, I, and it was wearing me out. It was, I was doing too much. I didn't know how to say no is what it boiled down to. And I was dead tired all the time. And Mama says, okay, Judy, what you need to do is give some of those, what do you call them, sponsorees? I said, yeah. She said, well, give them to somebody else. I said, Mom, you can't do that. You know? Now, my mother love, loves Alcoholics Anonymous. She doesn't understand us. She doesn't know what we are. But she loves us because her daughter doesn't drink anymore. Okay. So she loves this program. Yeah. Things have changed so much. You see, there have been so many things that have happened to me since I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to run those down to you real quick before I, before I quit up here. I was informed tonight that I talked 92 minutes one time. I think their timer is off, but I don't want to do that to you tonight. Uh, I came in and I really didn't have many skills left, I didn't think, and I really was worried about, you know, could I handle any, any kind of a job at all. And I did what they told me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was, since my temper was so bad, they said, why don't you go to work for a temporary agency? You know, that way you won't be at any one place too long and you'll still have an income. And that made sense. And it really worked because just about the time I really get ticked off at somebody, assignment was over, I was out of there. And it worked out real well and I was a good worker. And so I did that for a while, and then I got a job through that temporary agency, and I stayed with that company for five years, and I started off as their accounts receivable clerk. And then I, I moved in, and I did, I did accounts receivable and payroll, and then I did accounts receivable and payroll and insurance, and I just got into everything. And it was really neat, and I learned a lot. And then I transferred into sales, you know, and that was fun. I love sales. You know. And I did that for about three years, and I left that firm because I got a better offer from another company. And so I went with them. Now, you've got to understand what the transformation is here. The transformation is, is, is satin hot pants to a three-piece suit. That's what the transformation is. You know, and I'm walking Peachtree Street, but this time I'm carrying a briefcase instead of a knife. That's the transformation. Uh, and that's Alcoholics Anonymous because I did what they told me to do. And when I had trouble in doing these things, I'd go to my sponsors and say, man, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do here. And they had one question that they seemed to get stuck on. What step are you working? What has that got to do with this? What does a step have to do with the fact that I can't stand this guy? Well, then we'd have to go into the book. You know, go into the book. Or they'd just throw me those one-liners. Resentment's our number one offender. You know. they, didn't, they didn't talk a lot. They just had those one-line zingers that floored you, you know? wonderful I left uh, left there went into business for myself I'm not I don't even believe I did this I was a floral designer I had my own flower shop did that for about a year and a half that was wonderful and then the company I left because I got a better offer they called me back and said will you come back with us and I said yeah but it'll cost you you know I loved it because they should have given me that promotion in the first place and they didn't 
And uh, so when they called me and asked me to come back, I did go back. And, and truthfully, I say that snidely, but I really was quite flattered. I didn't think I'd ever hear from them again. I left on good terms. I didn't burn any bridges. I didn't cuss them out or anything. I just said, I'm not going to train your new regional manager. Uh, you know, I deserve that position. I didn't get it. Here's my resignation. And two years later, they said, you were right, which you know I loved. And... Um, <laughs> So I did go back, and that, that was good. And then shortly thereafter, I don't know how long, uh, uh, I left them and, and uh, went back to work in floral design. And um, uh, Craig came home. He had to come up here for a while for some things that occurred. And, uh, and uh, he came back to Atlanta, and he said, God, Jude, it's beautiful up there. I'd love to go up there. And I had reached the point in Atlanta where I was. Atlanta is now a huge city. Okay, back in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't quite like what it is now, but it is a huge city. And uh, I had really had it, and I didn't want to get back into the marketing game, and, and it had gotten so cutthroat, I just, I just didn't want any part of it anymore. And uh, so we decided to come up here. And, and, you know, it wasn't really a sober thing to do, because we didn't know where we were going to live. Craig's brother lives up in a, uh, near Malvern, so we knew we could stay there. And we didn't know where we were going to live. Neither one of us had a job. We put our house on the market in Atlanta, thinking it'd take a year to sell. Give us time to find a place to live and work up here. Sold the house in two weeks, and the guy had to be in two weeks later. So we took the proceeds from the house, and we came up here. And, you know, I was, I was concerned, and it was rough the first year and a half we were here. And I got a decent job up here, again, back in accounting, and uh, worked a lot of hours and uh, lost that job and through a restructuring kind of deal, so they told me. And um, I, Craig and I were driving around one day, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, Craig, for crying out loud. I said, you know, I'm 46 years old. If I go to work with another firm, who's to say in two years it's not going to happen again? I just don't know what to do. And he said, you'd always thought you'd be good in real estate. Sounded good to me. I was drawn on employment. I went to school. I got my license, and I am now selling farms in Carroll County, Ohio. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you what. I was thinking about this the other day. I had to go out and show just a small place, 15 acres, okay? But I had on my barn walking boots. That's a special kind of boot, trust me. And my blue jeans and a big overcoat because we are going to walk this acreage. And, I'll, and I'm waiting for the, for the buyer to show up and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I don't believe this, you know? From wearing those white vinyl go-go boots and the fishnet hose, you know, to barn walking boots and blue jeans, selling acreage. It just, it's not supposed to happen. It's just not supposed to happen. It's wonderful. It is just wonderful. Mike, Greg, and I have been through problems. We've been through problems financially. We've been through problems in our marriage. Uh, Mike, Craig chose to drink several times during the course of our marriage. I call him Mike, Craig because I'm possessive, okay? Uh, but it, it was tough, and I don't want to, to tell any of you that it's not. Okay, uh, Craig drank well, once when I was seven years sober and once uh, when I was 16, almost 17 years sober. And I want to tell you, and there's a couple of reasons why I want to tell you about this. One is, is that alcoholics and Al-Anons from my home group never left my side. Never. They never condemned me. They never condemned him. They were there for us. There was only one woman in the group that felt that she absolutely had to tell me what she thought, even though it was unsolicited. And I was just too upset to care what she said. It just didn't matter. It was tough. But I did the things that my sponsors had always told me to do. You go to meetings, Judy. You talk. You work with others. Don't get wrapped up in yourself. Stay busy. Keep going. You know? I heard a lady say one time that the only time that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous really counts is when you're staying sober and there's no reason in hell why you should. You know, and that was, those were some of those times. You know, because I had, it just all fell apart. You know, the other reason why I want to let you know that is because I came finally to the realization that I could still love him and hate this disease. No, I saw what alcoholism was like. I saw clearly what my family saw for years. And it is a disease. Oh. And it was wonderful because when, we, when he came back home and we were sitting there talking and he said, Well, Jude, what are you going to do? 
And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've already called Pam. She was our attorney. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just don't know. I said, I guess we just take it one day at a time. And that's been better than six years ago. I know. And he's still sober and I'm real grateful. And I still love him. I know. And the truth of the matter is, it's 50-50, baby. It could have been me. It could have been me. Yeah. If you're sitting out there right now and you got between two and four years sobriety and you're thinking about taking your own life, you're okay, honey. All right. And I will tell you that, and there's a lot of people who don't like to hear that, but I know when I was sitting out there, I was thinking, my God, i got to be nuts. You know? And again, all these people would come around that seemed to have their act together, and I was so screwed up, and nothing fit in my life. You know, and I, it just didn't seem like I could do anything right. And then these people would come in, oh, I've been sober 90 days, got a brand new house, and got my husband and kids back, and, you know, and I'm sitting there, I'm four years, nothing's going on here, nothing. You know, but I'll tell you something, what you really need to understand, and please hear me if you're one of those people, okay, you're getting better, because you're not thinking about drinking. And for the alcoholic, that's the most important thing. So I don't want to mislead you that suicide is healthy thinking, okay? But it is better for those of us that are alcoholic. You have come to the realization drinking is not going to fix it. So you have come a lot further than you think, you know? To those of us in, in the program, and as I was saying earlier, I hear a lot of stuff as I get around about differences in Alcoholics Anonymous, things that aren't as good as they used to be. And if I've got anybody to point the finger at, and I don't believe it's true, but if there's anybody to point the finger at, I think what we need to look at is look at those of us who was 10 years plus. Okay? Now, I, this is where the part where I'm going to get outspoken, and if I offend you, I hope you get over it. Okay? Because it's my belief that those of us that build sobriety in this program have a responsibility to let people know the truth. Okay? We have the responsibility to tell them what really is in the big book. We have the responsibility to tell them about their traditions. That is a responsibility. That is part of what we say when we say, thank you, God. Okay? We tell them about the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. We tell them about the contributions and where they go and what purpose they serve. We tell them about being a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. We tell them how to lead a meeting. All right? We tell them what is the responsibility about being a chairperson. We just don't say, it's your turn. We tell them. You know, what I've seen in Alcoholics Anonymous is a lot of us with 10 years plus are sitting back, let the newcomer do it. And that's true, let the newcomer do it. But I don't know about you, they taught me. They taught me about being an intergroup rep. Okay? They taught me about serving on the board for, for a club room. They taught me about integrity. They taught me about traditions. They told me where that buck went that I was putting in the basket. That's part of sponsorship. And I don't think we're doing that. Okay, so if there's a bad change in Alcoholics Anonymous and you're uncomfortable with it, then, you know, you need to do something about it. The prayer doesn't say, you know, just to skip the things that we can change. You know, we had a guy in our group that was raising cane all the time about somebody cussing. Constantly, constantly complaining about people cussing. I said, have you ever said anything to him? Have you ever pulled him aside after a meeting and said, you know, I know you don't realize how offensive that is, but it really offends me. He said, no, because they should know. No, they don't know. Trust me, they don't know. They don't know. You know, when we came in, they told the guys to take the hats off when they said the Lord's Prayer. They didn't wait for them to. They told them to. You know, but now we're so worried. We are so worried. You know, I think we've gotten confused. We are not professional counselors. We're alcoholics. All I got to give you is what I am as a drunk and what I've become as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't profess to be a counselor. You know, people get paid for that. They're far better ed educated and far better qualified than I to do that. Uh, but I think what we need to start passing on in here is Alcoholics Anonymous, not the newest self-help book that just happens to be on the market. You know, those things come and go, my friends. AA's been here a while. Generally, I have my big book with me. That's okay, I see it. So we need to do that. 
And it's going to come back to that, you know, when the insurance companies get tired of paying for detox, we're going to go back and pick them up one more time like we used to. And I, and I, that's really kind of, you know, it's really kind of sick. Craig and I were talking about it with a bunch of people the other night about how we used to go and pick up drunks and they'd get sick in your car, you know. I mean, it was really, it was awful. But we were sitting there talking about how much fun it was. You know what I told you? I mean, we are sick people. I went to a meeting recently and was disturbed to find out that an Alcoholics Anonymous group had rented a public facility and after they finished renting it, they received a letter that said you were not allowed to rent this facility again because of the mess you left it in. And this was from a public community thing. And that's what I'm talking about, that, you know, those of us in AA. Because, see, I had no social skills when I got here. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to behave. Jim used to have to tell me to lower my voice when we were out eating because I'd get upset about something and I'd start cussing and raising my voice. I didn't know how to act. That's our responsibility. We're to fit back into society. That's what it says. We are to be of maximum service and to God and the people about us. And that just does not mean Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and if we're worried about some outside forces that are coming in and they don't belong here, I will share with you what my sponsors shared with me. If they don't belong here, they won't stay. They'll leave. They might be a thorn in your side for a while, but they'll leave. You know, if they do belong here, welcome them. Welcome them with open arms. If Alcoholics Anonymous will work. I share with you my favorite paragraph, one of my favorites. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you do not know where it is, read the book until you find it. I got to share something with you before I quit. I was just standing up here and my mom flew across my mind. And this is one of my favorite things to share. My mother and I were in Atlanta shopping one day and the car was quiet. It was just she and I we were going around the freeway. And um, Mama reaches over and she pats me on the shoulder. And she said, you're a good daughter, Jude. And you're a good person. And Mama loves you very much. And that to me was probably one of the most important moments in my sobriety. Because it made every tear that I cried it made every day when it was so hard, when I wanted to drink so bad, when I wanted to run away so bad, it made every one of them worth it. Every one of them. And it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you for your attention.